the golden age of detective fiction was obsessed with identity. As soon as you start looking, you see impersonators everywhere in the crime fiction of the 1920s and 1930s. Sometimes there's more than one in a single novel. Without the readily available means of independently verifying that someone was who they claimed to be that police have today, during the interwar period, it was entirely plausible that an imposter could go unquestioned, even in extreme cases, by their own family. To 21st century readers, the common mystery fiction trope of the mysterious cousin from the colonies who conveniently turns up with a claim to the fortune and a ready motive for murder seems just that, a handy fictional device. But when writers like Josephine Tay, Agatha Christie and others were introducing themes of identity into their whodunits, they were doing so in the shadow of a notorious and infamous Victorian case of impersonation, inheritance and false identity. This is the story of the Titchborne Claimant. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Before we get started, I have a couple of notices to share with you. The first is an exciting bit of news. She Done It is hiring. Thanks to the ongoing support of She Done It book club members and everyone who took part in the pledge drive at the end of last year, I'm able to take on a part-time production assistant to help me with the process of making the podcast. It's a flexible and fully remote position, and you can find more details and information on how to apply at shedoneitshow.com slash production assistant, or by clicking the link in the episode description. Please do take a look if you're interested, or pass it on to anyone you know who might be suitable. The deadline for applications is the 30th of January, 2022. And secondly, I do want to give a proper spoiler warning for this episode. I'm not going to fully reveal any plots in huge detail, but the subject matter does require me to mention some happenings fairly late on in a few books. If you'd like to read any of the titles listed in the episode description without any prior knowledge, please do that before you listen to this. The story of the Tichborne claimant reads like a 19th century sensation novel. It's really no wonder that Golden Age writers, half a century later, were so inspired by it. As I've been researching the tale, every new twist seems to take it deeper into the realm of fiction. If it weren't for the fact that I was looking at actual newspaper articles and court transcripts, I could easily have been convinced that I was consuming a plot devised by Wilkie Collins or Sheridan Lefanu or Mary Elizabeth Braddon. The case can be summed up very succinctly like this. In 1854, the heir to both an aristocratic title and two estates in the south of England was reported lost at sea in the Caribbean. In 1866, someone based in Australia came forward, claiming to be this very heir. Without a rigid system of passport controls or any forensic means to test this assertion, it fell to the legal system to determine whether or not it was true. In 1871, the claimant's identity was put on trial in court in London, and the whole of Britain, and many people further afield, 
seemed to have had an opinion as to whether he was who he said he was or not. The missing heir was one Roger Childs Tichborne. Born in 1829, it had already taken several quirks and coincidences of inheritance to put him in the hot seat for the family titles and fortune. To understand why, we have to jump up a couple of generations and meet Sir Henry Tichborne, the seventh baronet. He and his wife Elizabeth had seven sons, the eldest of whom, another Henry, became the eighth baronet. This Henry had no male issue and a mere seven daughters, so because of the rules of the time prohibiting women inheriting such a title, upon his death it passed to the next of the seven brothers, Edward, the ninth baronet. Edward's only son died in infancy, so the next brother James then got a turn when Edward died in 1853. James Tichborne became the tenth baronet, and suddenly his son Roger went from being the unimportant son of the third son to being the heir to the whole fortune. During the later trial, there were attempts to portray Roger as a feckless, spendthrift, ungrateful sort of person, although what little first-hand evidence that remains of him, such as some of his correspondence and his will, seems to suggest he was fairly canny and cautious about his personal affairs. He had spent most of his childhood and adolescence in France, since his mother Henriette was originally from there. Indeed, in one of those picaresque touches I mentioned, Henriette Tichborne was supposedly related to the House of Bourbon, the Royal House of France, via her mother, who was an illegitimate daughter of the Duke de Bourbon. Despite this heritage, Roger did attend an English public school, Stonyhurst, and then took a commission in an English regiment. He first came into conflict with his family when he fell in love with his first cousin Kate, daughter of his uncle Edward, the ninth baronet. The family weren't thrilled at the idea of their marriage, but a compromise was reached. Beginning in 1852, Roger would go overseas for three years, during which time Kate, who was only 16, would be free to marry someone else if she so desired. If, at the end of this period, the cousins were still determined to make a match of it, they would be permitted to go ahead. Roger initially planned to spend his period of exile serving with his regiment in India, but the deployment was cancelled last minute. Furious that he was expected to spend his time back in barracks in Ireland instead, he resigned his commission and took a ship for South America, intending to spend his time and money seeing the world. And that's how, in April 1854, Roger Tichborne came to take a ship called the Bella from Rio de Janeiro bound for Kingston, Jamaica. Nothing was ever heard of the ship or her crew or passengers again. A few weeks after the departure, a few floating spars and an upturned longboat were discovered 400 miles offshore. It was assumed, therefore, that the Bella and everyone aboard her, including Roger Tichborne, had drowned. Now that Roger has gone, perhaps to his watery grave, the next person you must meet is one Arthur Orton. Born in 1834, Arthur was the youngest of 12 sons born to George Orton, a ship's butcher based in Wapping, East London. Arthur was considered slightly slow and was a sufferer of St Vitus's dance, a kind of convulsion that can affect adolescence and that is now known to be connected to rheumatic fever. 
partly because of these characteristics, and partly because he had 11 older brothers in line to inherit the butchering business ahead of him, employment was sought for Arthur overseas. At the age of 14, his father purchased an apprenticeship for him on a ship called the Ocean, and Arthur set off on his first voyage as a cabin boy to Valparaiso in Chile. But the seafaring life wasn't for Arthur, and upon arrival in South America, he deserted from his ship. He spent two years seemingly living on the charity of various well-off English expats, before smuggling himself on a different ship back to London in 1851. The crime writer Michael Gilbert, author of post-1945 Golden Age-style whodunits like Death in Captivity and Smallbone Deceased, was sufficiently fascinated by the Tichborne case that in 1959 he published an excellent review of the whole story, titled The Claimant. As his day job, Gilbert was a solicitor, so it's a very rigorous account of the legal proceedings, but the reason I like it has more to do with his gift for crime writing. He has a certain breezy turn of phrase that helps to place the reader in the atmosphere of the case, and I would recommend it to anyone who would like to know more about this extraordinary story than I can cover in a single episode. In his chapter about Arthur Orton's younger years, Gilbert remarks that there were, quote, altogether too many Ortons in Wapping, which goes some way to explaining why the clan kept trying to ship this younger son off to the colonies. The second time, After his ill-fated excursion to Chile, Arthur was headed for Australia, where a customer in Hobart, Tasmania, had ordered two of the prized Shetland ponies that Arthur's father bred in Wapping as a sideline. Like Roger, Arthur also departed England in 1852 and seems to have taken to Australian life fairly quickly. He had family connections in Tasmania and he was soon set up with a butcher's stall in the market at Hobart, earning a reputation for himself. So far, so mundane, these are just two young men, from very different backgrounds and currently on different continents, with nothing yet to link them together. The catalyst for what happens next is Roger's mother, Lady Tichborne. Michael Gilbert sums up her role neatly. Had she been a different sort of person, he writes, the Tichborne case might never have been heard of. Lady Tichborne wasn't willing to accept that her beloved elder son Roger had been drowned in a shipwreck on the way to Jamaica, you see. Even after the detailed news of what had happened to his ship reached England, she maintained that he must have somehow escaped the fate that had apparently befallen everyone else on board and was still alive, somewhere out there in the world. And what did you do in the 1850s if you wanted to get in touch with someone who hadn't made contact with you? You advertised in the newspaper, of course. So that's what Lady Tichborne did, despite the misgivings and rolled eyes of the rest of her family. If anybody can give any clue of Roger Charles Tichborne, and if there are any survivors of the Bella, they are requested to let Lady Tichborne know of them at 1 Nottingham Place Regent's Park. A handsome reward is promised for any well-authenticated particulars. The word reward, by the way, appears in all caps. This text appeared in several languages in the Times newspaper, both in the English and overseas editions. Where Lady Tichborne could find a local inquiry agent willing to take up the work, it was also inserted into other publications, which is how, in 1865, it came to appear in the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia. This was actually a much longer advert, giving some information about what age Roger would be now, 
36, his appearance before he disappeared, and the crucial fact that since his father's death in 1862, if alive, Roger would be the rightful heir to the entire Tichborne estate. The fact that Roger's younger brother Alfred had already inherited did not seem to trouble Lady Tichborne. She believed absolutely in Roger's survival, and Alfred would just have to make way for him. A solicitor called William Gibbs in the town of Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, was at this time dealing with the collection of a debt of £6 from a certain Thomas Castro, who had appeared in the town around 1861, and who seemed to have little or no prior history that anybody knew about. In another of those random strokes of luck that pepper this case, William's wife had seen this advertisement in the Sydney newspaper. She made the suggestion that perhaps Castro was Roger Tichborne, and her husband ran with it. His hopes of collecting the reward were significantly bolstered early on when, in his first meeting with Castro, he was smoking a pipe with RCT carved into it. Gibbs was also greatly impressed by the gallant way in which Castro held the door open for his wife, which convinced him of an aristocratic upbringing. Lady Tichborne's Australian inquiry agent, Arthur Cubitt, was soon called in, and a letter was written to Lady Tichborne from Castro, explaining that he was Roger, he was alive, he had lost some of his memory, and that he was keen to come home to England as soon as she could send the money for his fare. Initially, the solicitor stumped up the money for Castro, his wife and their new baby to go to Sydney to pursue the matter further. And who was this Castro, I can hear you wondering? Well, this identity crisis is complex, but the evidence is very strong that he was one Arthur Orton, formerly of Hobart, Tasmania, and even more formerly of Wapping, London. For ease of reference, from now on we'll just call him, as everyone else did at the time, the claimant. A letter from Lady Tichborne eventually reached the claimant and his growing band of supporters in Sydney. She suggested that he set off immediately for Europe, and also imparted the news that a beloved old family servant, Andrew Bogle, was actually in Sydney. Originally from the West Indies, Bogle had been valet to Edward Tichborne, the ninth baronet, and Roger's uncle. When he'd heard that Roger had re-emerged, Bogle rushed round to his hotel, only to be disappointed. I came here to see Sir Roger, he said. You are not he. But eventually he was persuaded that this was Roger, and that he'd just put on a lot of weight since they had last met. Bogle's apparent recognition of the claimant was an important early boost to the campaign for formal recognition, and eventually inheritance. Finally, the whole party set off from Sydney, going first to Panama and thence to London. That was where the claim would truly be tested. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. 
We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use. And I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. When the claimant first arrived back in England, his fortunes were on the up. Lady Titchbourne was convinced that he was her son Roger and that she'd been right all along never to doubt that he had survived the shipwreck back in 1854. The Titchborne family solicitor and doctor, both of whom had known Roger, also pronounced themselves satisfied as to his identity. Several of Roger's former military colleagues also lent their voices to the chorus of support, as did some prominent members of Parliament. However, there was also substantial opposition to his claim, in the form of the rest of the Titchborne family, none of whom recognised him as genuine. Roger's younger brother Alfred, the 11th baronet, had died the year before the claimant arrived in London, leaving a pregnant wife behind. A son was born in May 1866, and the Titchborne family rallied around this infant as the rightful heir to the estates and titles. However, this fragile line of succession only heightened the public interest in the question. If this baby didn't survive, The claimant could conceivably be the sole remaining heir of a noble English family that could trace its lineage back before the Norman conquest of 1066. You see what I mean when I say that this story has all the ingredients required of the most florid and gothic Victorian novel. Matters were at an impasse. Some reliable and important witnesses recognised the claimant, while others called him a fraud. There was no objective test that he could pass to prove himself, and no DNA that could be cross-checked or anything like that. Instead, the progress of his claim relied upon subjective judgments as to whether he had the same French-inflected accent as Roger Titchborne had had in his youth, or whether, despite now weighing over £300, any physical resemblance could be detected. As well as the family drama within the Titchborne clan that kept the case in the newspapers during the claimant's first few months in Britain, there were two other factors that kept interest running high. The first was the fact that the Titchborns were, famously, an old and prominent Roman Catholic family. Since the English Reformation in the 16th century separated the Church of England from the Church of Rome, a series of laws had been introduced by successive monarchs that restricted and in some cases criminalised aspects of Roman Catholic worship. But beginning in the 18th century, a process known as Catholic relief began, and in 1829, coincidentally the year that Roger Titchborne was born, the Catholic Emancipation Act was passed. 
This effectively allowed Catholics in England to participate fully in public life for the first time in centuries. They could now vote, run for election to Parliament, and hold most of the major offices of state. The Tichborns, although definitely wealthy and aristocratic, had until very recently then belonged to this class of official outsider, and they were suspect as a result. They were titled, but they weren't exactly welcome in the British establishment because of their adherence down the centuries to their religion. So given how topical the subject of Catholic emancipation was at the time, it's not exactly surprising that the general public was keen to see their dirty linen washed in public. Whether the claimant was a sufficiently devout Catholic to pass as Roger Tichborne formed a prominent part of the debate about his identity. Then the second thing that fired the public imagination was an ancient tradition called the Tichborne Dole. The legend runs like this. In the 12th century, a Lady Mariella, the wife of a miserly Sir Henry de Tichborne, had asked her husband on her deathbed to dedicate some land to provide an income for the poor in her memory. His reply was to pull a burning brand from the fire and say that she could have as much land as she could walk around carrying the torch before it went out. As ill as she was, she supposedly still managed to crawl around 23 acres of land before the fire petered out. For the next 600 years, every Lady Day, that is, the Feast of the Annunciation, 25th of March, this charitable gift was given. And for good reason. To get her revenge, Lady Mariella had placed a curse on her husband's descendants. If they ever stopped performing this act of charity, the Tichborne family would see a generation of seven sons and then a generation of seven daughters, after which the name would die out and the family mansion would fall down. The practice of handing out the Tichborne doll was suspended in 1796. In 1803, the family seat did start falling down because of subsidence. And as we've already heard, in 1821, Henry Tichborne succeeded to the baronetcy, the eldest of seven sons. He then had seven daughters, at which point the family got scared that the curse was coming true and restarted the charitable giving. Roger Tichborne, Henry's nephew, was born before the resumption of the doll, and his younger brother Alfred, after. Roger was cursed then, but Alfred wasn't. Proved, many said, by the fact that Alfred was survived by his infant son, while Roger was lost at sea without issue. Ancient curses. Truly, this story has it all. As Michael Gilbert put it, this story was the perfect blend of a permanent cup final with a well-managed, never-ending strip cartoon. Without any objective test for the claimant to pass, and with mixed results on Roger's known associates recognising him, the case fell back on classic detective work. The Tichborne family sent an agent to Australia to investigate the claimant's life there, with especial reference to the story of Arthur Orton, if you remember him. One of the many complicating factors about this whole business is that even while the claimant was trying to prove that he was Roger Tichborne, he was also trying to prove that he wasn't Arthur Orton, the butcher's son from Wapping who had emigrated and whose family the claimant seemed to have made contact with soon after his return to England. The claimant himself also travelled to South America in 1868 to meet potential witnesses who had met Roger Tichborne there during his travels. 
and this is where we meet an old friend, Jack Witcher. You may remember him from the episode I made last year with Robin Stevens, The Murder at Roadhill House, or indeed if you've read or seen The Suspicions of Mr Witcher. He had been the main detective in another controversial Victorian case, that of the murder of Francis Savile Kent at Roadhill House in 1860. After his failure to solve this case, his suspicions about Francis's older sister Constance were not taken seriously and his reputation was ruined, Witcher left the Metropolitan Police in 1864. By the time the claimant came to London, Witcher was working as a private investigator. He was hired by a friend of the Tichborne family to find material that would discredit the claimant, and over the next seven years he did an excellent job. It was Witcher, using painstaking detective work, who proved beyond reasonable doubt that the claimant had family connections in Wapping. And it was him who located Arthur Orton's former girlfriend and persuaded her to testify in court. As with everything in Britain, eventually the case of the Tichborne claimant came back to social class. He enjoyed tremendous support among the working class around the country, who saw him as a man who'd lived a rough and ready life in Australia, who was now being done out of his rightful inheritance by the aristocrats and the Catholic elite. The upper classes, meanwhile, were mostly unconvinced by the claimant's unpolished manners, his inability to speak his native language, French, and his lack of knowledge of the family estate's servants. As the claimant travelled around the country, speaking at public meetings to drum up support for his cause, the whole question of the Tichborne inheritance became a lightning rod for the class divisions of the day. Everything eventually came to a head in 1871, when the Tichborne claimant brought a civil case to court that sought to establish his identity and rights to the Tichborne estates. It's worth mentioning that the whole fortune amounted to several million pounds a year in today's money which makes all of these shenanigans make a lot more sense. The claimant was playing for very high stakes, and the people who hitched themselves to his cause hoped to be amply rewarded if he succeeded. The court heard evidence from lots of people who believed that the claimant was Roger Tichborne, as well as arguments from the defence that he was in fact Arthur Orton, and old family servants like Andrew Bogle had been coaching him in how to behave like Roger, in return for a promised cut of the inheritance. The decisive moment came when a school friend of Roger Tichborne's testified. He said that Roger had had tattoos that the claimant did not possess. The jury found against the claimant, and the state then immediately began criminal proceedings against him for perjury and put him in Newgate Prison. His fortunes were utterly reversed, and from being an up-and-coming man with an expectation of a large inheritance, he became a bankrupt prisoner begging in newspaper articles for the public to donate funds for his defence. The perjury trial began in 1873 and lasted for 188 days, one of the longest court hearings in English legal history. Public interest in his story remained high, but nothing can suck the thrill out of a story like a really long and technical court case. By the time the judge found him guilty of perjury in 1874, the fervour surrounding the case of the Tichborne claimant had already diminished. In his summing up, the judge not only found him guilty, but stated that he was not Roger Tichborne and was in fact Arthur Orton, which rather put a dampener on his supporters' spirits too. 
There are many examples of how aspects of this case were imported into detective fiction. Novels like Hercule Poirot's Christmas and Dead Man's Folly by Agatha Christie both feature people who return from overseas to inhabit new identities in an attempt to secure large inheritances. In fact, the disguised cousin who reveals themselves during the denouement is such a common trope in golden age crime fiction that every parody of the genre features a moment where someone leaps up and declares, no, it is I, Cousin Andrew, back from the dead to claim my inheritance. As readers of this kind of book, we learn not to believe that anyone is who they say they are until the very last page. After the official golden age was over, authors continued to experiment in this vein as the crime novel developed. A book like The Nine Wrong Answers by John Dixon Carr from 1952 has an interesting twist on a claimant-style narrative, since it features a nephew who pays someone else to impersonate him so that his rich uncle will consider the conditions for his inheritance fulfilled. The World Wars also provided good material for writers interested in ideas of identity, inheritance and impersonation, as Julian Simmons showed in 1965's The Belting Inheritance. In that story, an aristocratic matriarch, Lady Warrington, has four sons, two of whom died in World War II. And yet one of these supposedly deceased sons returns unexpectedly, and the rest of the family have to grapple with the idea that he may be genuine, or he may be an imposter there to secure one-third of a substantial inheritance. However, the best and closest replica of the Tichborne claimant story in fiction is Josephine Tay's 1949 novel, Brat Farrer. This story, which takes place after the Second World War on a country estate in the south of England, features a young man returning home from the colonies to claim his stake in a valuable stud farm. He claims to be Patrick Ashby, who went missing and was presumed to have taken his own life by drowning at the age of 13. Tay plays with her reader's familiarity with the Tichborne case, though, and inverts many of the claimant's characteristics. Brat is thin where the claimant was fat, almost pathologically honest rather than constantly being caught out in his own lies, and in possession of a good rather than flimsy claim. The final outcome of the novel, too, diverges from real life, perhaps because what really happened to the Tichborne claimant was too tragic to be believable in a novel. For you see, by the time the claimant had served his ten-year sentence for perjury and got out of prison in 1884, nobody really cared about his cause anymore. He was broke and unlucky in every endeavour he tried. At one point he even confessed that his whole claim had been spurious in a newspaper, in exchange for a few hundred pounds, and then immediately recanted it. He died in poverty in 1898 and 5,000 people came out to see him buried in an unmarked pauper's grave. As for the Tichborne family, you could say that Lady Mariella's curse got them in the end, although it took a bit longer than she might have intended. The Tichborns made it well into the 20th century, and eventually died out in 1968, when the 14th Baronet died without male issue. The various legal experts, including crime writer-slash-solicitor Michael Gilbert, who have reviewed the case down the years, generally agree that the claimant was really Arthur Orton, and this whole saga was an elaborate and audacious attempt at fraud. As I hope you can appreciate having now heard all about it, it's not something that it's really possible to feel neutral about. Like all the most intriguing true crime stories, 
you feel like you must take a side. However, there is one last mystery that Michael Gilbert highlights in his book, and that I agree has never been satisfactorily solved. If the claimant was indeed Arthur Orton, the poorly educated son of a butcher from Wapping, how did he manage to convince so many of Roger Tichborne's highly educated friends, relatives and even his mother that he was genuine? Part of what makes this case endure is this very question. A lot of serious people took his claim seriously. Perhaps they were all just wishfully thinking, or hoping for a cut of the spoils, but both of those ideas seem a bit far-fetched. As a conspiracy, investigation suggests that it was entirely organic, with the key figures just seeing how far confidence and Orton's knack for memorising minor details about Roger's life could take them. But whoever he really was, he did achieve immortality of a sort. Nobody will ever forget the Tichborne claimant. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.